Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Lumina Foundation and the Stupsky Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. This is our first podcast for our new podcast, Let's Hear It. And uh, we're so happy to have you all here. And um, Eric, you're launching us the right way with this conversation you've had with your old boss, Larry Kramer. But before we go there, why don't you tell people a little bit about what we're trying to do with this podcast? I don't know, know, Kirk, what are we trying to do in this podcast (laughs) other than fiddle around with dials and buttons and things like that. No, it's this is uh, all your fault. This is all my fault. Also, by the way, wasn't it fun to hear us do that intro read? I thought it was partnership and 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 you know, I felt like the Harlem Globetrotters. Just passing I, I the wanted... ball back and forth. Spinning Sweet in. Georgia Brown. <laughs> spinning. <laughs> anyway, um so what is this podcast? To be perfectly honest with you, this what we've tried to do, I think, is to have the kind of conversations with people that we wished we were able to listen to when we were just young badgers in the communications field. Do I have, do I have that right? Yeah. And actually, you know what? I think the backstory too, that we got started talking about this around the communications network conference, uh, at least for me, is kind of a reference point because you and I actually did a communications network conference right? <laughs> That's right. years ago. That one was, it was in black and white. <laughs> and there were maybe I'm I always say there were 50 or 75 people in the room. Do you think that's a fair yeah. a fair comment? If, if you include the, you know, the waiters. Yeah, the guys, right, the people, the people pouring the water. <laughs> that's right, exactly. <laughs> there might have been 50. And we were talking about the conference that came into San Francisco where we're both based, came into San Francisco in 2018 and what's the headcount for that now, oh, Eric? And by the way, I 1000. Probably 1000 people. Yeah. Which is such a testament to all the work that the communications network and everybody has been doing to grow that as a resource. And it's awesome. But our, at least my feeling about that is if I walked into a room of a thousand people as a first timer, you'd be scared. I'm I'm getting locked. (laughs) Terrified. Kirk, you're so intimidating. You are, you're from the Midwest. So you're a badass. And that's right. I'm telling you. It's I, I I'm scared to death every time I see you. You just freak me out. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, you know, many people are scared every time they see me. But I think this suddenly became a different podcast. <laughs> so, so we thought we and actually I thought you know Eric knows everybody because he's such a nice guy. He's been around such a long time. He's done such good work. Let's just ride your coattails. Let's see who will talk to Eric and let's all listen in because I also think there's not only intimacy. It's so big but it's also familiarity. And there's a kind of conversation that you can be part of once you know people, you know, for a long time and you have some shared history. Would would it be possible to use this podcast as a way to kind of short circuit that? People will talk to me and they forget 
that there are going to be at least 10 more people who get to hear that conversation. And they say all sorts of incredibly, you know, embarrassing things. No, um, but I mean, what we are trying to do is have a, a, pers- a kind of a human conversation. And often you go to a conference or you go to some meeting or something like that. And what you get are, I think, okay, you know, kind of comments meant for public consumption in a different type of way, or even just the yeah. venue itself doesn't always lend itself to the sort of conversations that I hope that we're going to be able to have over the course of this enterprise. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and frankly, that's, what's been coming across. I mean, we'll segue in a moment to what you have done here with Larry, who is so generous to spend time talking about this, but I think our goal is to get um, a few of these out on a pretty regular basis. And in a sense, have it be a journey, just a process of discovery where, we can all together get to know people and hear about what they're doing, see the work they're doing, and hopefully learn something. But you've been clear about this. You would like this to be fun, exciting, and engaging. So we're going to be hearing a lot be, from you. Kirk, we're you want to be a Garrett. journey of discovery in which you cue the journey of discovery music. A lot of strings. I, I do. I, to, I do. I want it Orchestral. to be as, I don't know what. <laughs> Not the journey of discovery is fun. I want to discover. I want to be stupider when it's over than when I started. That's that was my goals. Is is to is I drain my brain of information. No, it's it's. So between the two of us, who knows what's going to happen? But I I do think that the point is that it ought to be interesting and fun to listen to. And it is true that the people that we are going to be speaking with are really interesting people who have a lot to say. So kind of despite my own silliness, they actually are able to share useful information and meaningful stories, I hope. Well, absolutely. And I think you just gave us the best segue because I think you're you're our first guest here. I'm the Segway King. Ah, Larry Kramer from the Hewlett Foundation. Interesting person, has a lot to say. I think that's yeah. pretty tight. Larry, Larry Kramer Wallflower, um, not Larry. No, Larry is one of the most interesting people on, on his worst day. He's incredibly interesting. And on his best day, the top of your head will come off. He's, he's really, really smart. It's, he was my boss for a, a couple of years at the end of my time at the Hewlett Foundation. And one of the worst things in life is having a boss who's 10 times smarter than you are. because you can really never measure up uh and the wonderful thing about his brain is how quickly it works and he took to philanthropy very quickly and i think he has emerged in the two years since he has been the or oh sorry now it's been five or six um yeah (laughs) i was with him for two and i've been gone for four or so but in the five or six years since he's been the president of the hewlett foundation i really think that he has helped changed the way some people think about philanthropy and he has certainly been an exciting communicator and willing to take public stands on some really important issues that hewlett had already been engaged with but also bring some new programming into focus there too um yeah i have to say as somebody who's been around hewlett for a while it was really 
awesome to be able to listen to this conversation. I, I, again, I think it's a conversation that only a handful of people in the world literally could have had with Larry. <laughs> and so I have a, uh, anybody and so, who wanders into his office can have one. And basically, if you call him up, <laughs> he'll say, sure, come on over. Let's chat. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but but and so this conversation happened uh, summer of 2018. So it's a, it's it's an old conversation. But what he says is is meaningful and relevant today as it ever was. Uh, and it happens now as as we record this conversation and we are about to release the interview. He has just published an essay on the Hewlett website. And I think what we're going to do, we're going to do a special episode, just you and me talking about this essay. But, but Kirk, can you just yeah. give us a little preview of what that conversation is going to be? Uh, so our, our special episode is going to be looking at uh, Larry's call basically to all of us to examine what it is to listen with empathy. And um, there's a lot going on in that essay, not to mention how Hewlett is starting to use its own platform to project its values forward. There's a lot yeah. to talk about in it. So um, we'll we'll deconstruct it. And uh, if you happen to hear this and happen to have a chance to jump to the Hewlett website, you'll find it. Um, on the site and it's it's a it's certainly well worth the read so we'd encourage yeah, you to read it it's fascinating stuff and good for and larry's a great writer he's and as you're about to find out he's a really interesting conversationalist and there will be unless you uh not unless you want to turn it off because now you've heard all the fun stuff um keep listening <laughs> we we talk about the beatles we talk about hold music for the hewlett foundation we talk about what else do we talk about? We talk about his mother. And no conversation with Larry does not include some reference to his mother and her hopes for <laughs> his his improvement as a human being. What, what what else? What else do we need to do to before we before we go to the actual conversation? I think that's it. Uh, Eric and Larry will talk, and then we'll come back and we'll chat a bit more about the. Um about the interview and that'll be the format for the podcast moving forward. So um, thanks again to the Knight Foundation for uh, supporting this work. Thanks again to all other people helping us pull this together. And Mr. Brown, thank you. All right, let's hear it. I'm here with my former boss and our, our guest, Larry Kramer, who's the uh, the president and CEO, or what are you, the president and CEO? Just, president. Just the president. You know, someday, if you work hard enough, you get to be CEO of the Hewlett Foundation. And uh, Larry's been generous enough to sit with us for a little while. And basically, just to remind you the format, we're just going to turn this thing on, and in 15 minutes later, we're going to turn it off. So we're not editing unless, like, if you go into a sneezing fit, okay, we might consider... Doing a little snippet. So I can cuss as much as you I can, want. You can, you can put do, it on. You can do whatever you want, uh, assuming that you don't do it. Don't say anything that's going to cost you your job. Right. Uh, right. If, if you really worry, we'll turn it off. But anyway, so so I'm here with Larry, and um, we're heading into the Communications Network conference in October in San Francisco. So we'll be bringing together communications people from nonprofits and foundations. And I, I just think that people would be fascinated to hear from you running one of the foundations, one of the country's largest foundations, kind of, you know, what are the things that you're thinking about? What are the issues that, that are interesting to you? And maybe we'll talk a little bit about, you know, the Beatles or, yeah. or something else. And I the, think about the Beatles all the time. I know. Like the application of the Beatles towards philanthropy. Could, you know, I've been trying really hard to, actually, I really wanted to get our home music 
to be, you know, like, can't buy me love, never give me your money, <laughs> and money, you know, they did that cover. Yeah. And we couldn't get the rights. They you wouldn't let the, us do it, no. Did the, did the foundation ever consider buying the Beatles songbooks? So and that's could, a little more than I think I could justify you, for the board. You think that wouldn't, but yeah, I, mean, I think that would have gone. Could maybe get the investment team. It's, 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 it's you know, it's, a, it's an asset. I haven't tried that. I will confess. I then we tried Pink Floyd, you know, to get their song money. Yeah, I just think it'll be fun to have the whole music. Can't buy me love is perfect. Yes, right. So yeah, so so far we failed in all efforts to get a good fun song on our whole. You um, you know, you fund performing arts, right? Yes, I know. I tried tried to, to get their help too. Fund a contest. But no, I don't want a new song. Make a new song that would become important. Yeah, it's no? old music, you know, only like a handful music. of people heard they only hear a snippet. So it would have to be something like people instantly hear and think it's funny. Right? Old so, music is so important. we thought of like all the old classic songs that are kind of about money. Uh, oh well. Yeah. You know it's funny, speaking of money. Uh, I remember Paul, your predecessor, Paul's photo. His 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 I still have that. He left it on my desk. His, when I got here, my desk was Empty except for that saying Paul left. Is that what you're talking about? No, no, no. It's another one. It was his picture that was on the website. And it was this look. Some people think that Paul's a little imperious. Uh, or, or can they clearly be, don't know. They don't know. They don't. But, but in, in, at first blush, they're very, very intimidated by him. And the photo that he had on the website when I first started the foundation um, did nothing to dissuade that misperception. And he had this look on his face that he was about to say, no, you can't have the money. <laughs> And so we got a new picture taken, and the next, the new picture was slightly softer, in which he looked like the look on his face said, "Well, you're probably not going to get the money," and that was the best that we could get out of him. Mine just makes me look fat. <laughs> Did these pants make me look fat? The, so, all right, um, let's start by nominally talking about communications, and then we can talk about other stuff. I mean, what? Can I confess I've never really understood what communications means? That's exactly my question for you. Wait, what are these things? What do you like think? A buzzword. What do you like? Okay, what do you think? What do you think it's what it means, or what should it mean? I've or? come to understand it better. So, right, there's all the things that I never, you know, like I came from a university, so in universities, people loathe that language, like brands and all of that stuff. So, so there's that piece. I mean, the part that obviously is like really good and important is we're trying to change people's minds and what they do and their hearts and like how you communicate with them is a huge part of that. So, so I get that now. And, and actually, you know, um, as you know, when you were here, there are Hewlett's where we had really bad communications for a really long time. So when we were finally able to know, you know, when you left, it was really an opportunity to change the role of communications in the foundation from what it had been. So that required some conversation with the board. But the idea of really, you know, building into the programs, communications is part of the strategy. And it's taken the programs a while to figure out what that means and how to do it. So it's, you know, it's simple and complicated at the same time. You know, it's funny because you, you almost have to get a new person to come in with a new strategy. That like that is that the inflection point? Well, yeah, change of people are always an opportunity, but there was more in this case, right? Because, you know, before you, there was zero and you came in in that period when I was like, we don't communicate, right? We give our grantees money. We let them speak. We don't do anything. And, and you, you, so your leaving was not just an opportunity to have a new person to rethink, but it was really to go to the board and say, you know, we should rethink this whole community. Sometimes we actually do need to use our voice. Um, and, and it was an interesting conversation. Who do you think that we should use our voice with? 
Who, who are you trying to influence as the foundation yeah, in its voice? It depends, right? So it depends on the strategy. I mean, in some, like in Madison, especially at the beginning when we were, we were, we were the only voice out there. So we were using our voice to kind of try and influence everybody. At least get people say, oh, you know, this is a problem. And oh, right, maybe we should think about it that way. Um, so that's an area in which we were speaking to uh, multiple audiences. And Madison Initiative is the foundation's initiative to try and save American yeah, democracy. fixing democracy. Right. I, used to, I love to say that when I say to crowds, I'd get a laugh. Actually, it would be, we're trying to fix Congress. That got a bigger laugh. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, you know, that is what we're trying so to make, do. Make democracy great again? Well, at least, yeah. I will make it minimally functional again. <laughs> that's what I'll settle for. Make democracy, although I do have a hat over there that's make Congress great again. Uh, or make, make democracy exist again. <laughs> um, and then, you know, for others, we're just trying to communicate to our grantees. And for a lot of them, we're trying to actually help our grantees communicate better. Right. And sometimes that's each of them communicating their strategies, but sometimes it's their communications to sort of cohere around our strategy, you know, the larger message. So if you take something like our education strategy on deeper learning, no particular grantee is doing deeper learning. They're all doing pieces of it. But we need a message out there, which is that the culture of education needs to change to focus more on, you know, teaching students how to think and less on content and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And are there areas that you think that you're getting somewhere? Have you seen, like, when it works, It's this is the old, uh, I'll know it when I see it. Yeah. Model, can you give me any examples where you think that the communications has been effective? <laughs> no, it's not that I can't. No, it's not. It's not. I won't. Well, no, no, it's that, you know, in a lot of areas, as with... Uh, It'd be the same question if you asked me about our, our grant making. Right. Because we're not the only grant maker or communicator in any of these areas. So I'm loyal to say, yes, us. Right. But I think communications broadly in climate has been hugely important and successful. Everything from there is increasing awareness of the problem to not having happened in Paris, what happened in Copenhagen. And that was absolutely a smart communications strategy that was well coordinated. Same thing in democracy. I mean, I do think... Um, awareness of the problem has increased. I think we were the first in, and so that had some play, but obviously lots of others have come in since. And same thing in cybersecurity. Um, so in those areas, I can say I think it mattered because we were, we started it and other people have gone, oh, yeah, yeah, and, and have come into the field. Now, they might have had we not done it. That's right. what you never know for sure. Um, and then when you get into the you know more complex strategies, again, it's we're, we're one voice among any, so what I can say is, as with our grant making, I'm not sure, like I can't show you the, you couldn't do a study to prove causally that it was our communications or our grants, that I'm comfortable enough that, that I would not have done it otherwise. That may be the most you can ask. Yeah, I think so. It's, it's impossible. There, you can't take a core sample or a DNA right, of, of right. a message that made it. Right. And if you out. make your best guess, you're like, I'm pretty sure we're better off for having done this than if we not done it. Yeah. Well, with deeper learning, I mean, you coined the phrase, you, you created it. It has become a problem, though. Yeah. Right. We, we're trying to get away from it now, you know, because it has taken on. This is the problem with uh, not communicating. Well, communications, you know, like words, phrases become loaded and then people think they know what you're saying before you've finished and they stop listening. Diversity, equity and inclusion. I, I tried very hard when we started all our work in the foundation around that to use some other language, not because I think there's anything wrong with it as such, but because for everybody, they think they already know what you're talking about. And so it's hard to really have a 
the full kind of conversation you want to have. Yeah. Well, I mean, I believe that about jargon anyway. Yeah. Because jargon just allows you to not say anything. You you just kind of use a phrase that everyone believes that they they well, they some, paint their own hopes yes. and dreams on it. Yes, but some things become jargon against your will. Yes. <laughs> That's what happened with deeper learning. We don't want it to be jargon. That's right. You know. Yeah. But you still have to explain learning. When you talk about deeper learning, you have to explain what your version of it yes. actually means. But we're now at the point where a lot of people think they already know that. So that, so when you yeah. do that, they're, they're not hearing you. Got it. Well, that makes sense. All right. So enough about communications. That was so exciting. What I wanted, I'd much rather talk about uh, just you because you're an interesting guy. Uh, nobody wakes up. Nobody gets graduates from fifth grade and says, Mom, I want to be a foundation no, I didn't have that happen until seventh. The seventh grade, it was like, no, 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 but you tell a very funny story about the first day at the foundation. Yeah. You mean with my mom? You with your mom. I mean, all my good stories are with my mom. Although it wasn't so, yeah, so, um, so I was dean at the law school. That's never law. Yeah. I mean, the deeper background is my mom, being a Jewish mother of that generation, had wanted me to be a doctor and never forgave me, still hasn't really, for not becoming a doctor. So when I went to law school, that was like a deep second best when I became an academic. That was a huge disappointment to her. Mm-hmm. It was only when I became dean at the law school that she said to me, you know, maybe you didn't ruin your life. After, that's a quote. Maybe you didn't ruin your life after all. Um, and and so then when eight years later, I called her to tell her that I was leaving the law school to become president of the Hewitt Foundation. She said to me, well, okay, you know, I'm sure it's a good decision if you made it. But if you ask me, being dean of Stanford Law School is a lot more prestigious and important. To which, you know, I thought, well, of course, that's always been the you know, basis for my career choices is what you think is impressive and important. <laughs> um, I didn't say that. But, you know, I, all I said was, you know, well, mom, go take a look. I have to go to a meeting. I had to go tell the provost I was leaving. And I said, uh, so go take a look at the website and I'll call you later. And when I called her later, she was kind of in tears, you know, and she like got it. Well, because she didn't like the website. <laughs> well, it wasn't like, bad. Oh, my God, you're going to redo your website, Larry. It's awful communications office. <laughs> we did redo the website. Um, no, no, you know, she she had never. So when I said to the staff, my first day here was um, I loved the fact that she had never heard of the Hewlett Foundation, but that when she understood what it did, she thought it was moving because, you know, I think for me personally, I'm very consistent with the value this place has of not really wanting to be self-promotional. Although, you know, I will say not because I'm that good a person. Like I love, I want people to like say great things about me, just not to my face. Cause okay. I find that embarrassing. Uh, so I want to hear it second. You don't seem embarrassed when people say, Oh things. God, I, it's so uncomfortable. I hate, no, seriously. It is one of the most uncomfortable things for me. I just hate when people are, saying, so I want them to tell somebody else who could tell me. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because People have always said, often you hear that, uh, you know, we want the foundation to get its name out there to the public so that they better understand what we do. But I had never agreed with that because the public's not really, I don't think the public's our audience. Did I ever tell you the story about my father-in-law? No. He, so one day when, when, um, when Meg Whitman became CEO of HP, she, uh, my, my father-in-law called my wife because she well, first he called HP because he thought I worked for HP. Right. And, and, and there was no Eric Brown there. Amazingly, there was no Eric Brown at HP. You'd think they'd find I would think there'd be an Eric Brown everywhere. Yeah, there, <laughs> but there wasn't. And, and then so he called my wife and said, I think, I think Eric's been fired. 
because I called HP. Now, he's been my father-in-law 28 years, and he still doesn't know, or he still doesn't know what I did right, when I was here. Right. Uh, and so, but I thought that that was okay if we had, if the foundation had used its limited marketing dollars, however defined, to reach my father-in-law, that would have been dollars wasted. Yeah. So the problem I have is I agree with that. I do. But there's, there is, I'm not that good a person, so there is that part of me <laughs> that always like gets a little jealous slash annoyed when some other foundation gets attention and praise for stuff that I know either we're doing or we're doing as well, or I think better than them, you know, it's like, so, but I, you know, I, I get it enough that I don't then try and do that. Right. But, but uh, yeah, like I said, I'm not that big a person. So that's what I, say. I love when, when unprompted by us, right. people like pick up that we're doing something good and praise it. I, I confess I like that. Right. Uh, well, there's a little bit I had in almost every foundation yeah. leader, but that's okay. Well, it's not per so personally, it would be the same thing. I would actually it would be really appalling, you know, to have lots of praise for me as for the as opposed to for the fun, particularly knowing that I don't actually do anything. <laughs> My daughter said to me, "What do you do all day?" You know, and I said, I don't, "Nothing." So you didn't do anything? I make decisions. I don't know. I hire, you know, no. Like, my, right, my, if I'm doing my job well, I should not be doing anything. Because I should have hired people who are doing such good work that I don't need to do much of anything. Right. Which is, you know, pretty good. You know, I came into an organization. I think, knowing nothing about philanthropy, when I came here, I could take that whole first year to learn because it was, other than the climate works thing, I wasn't doing anything. And, you know, and yeah, so it's a great job. Well, deep in your heart, I know you don't believe that, but that's okay. I'll allow you to present false modesty. It's not false modesty, although, yes, I obviously do something. I, I, but, like, yeah, it's a weird job being the CEO because, in a sense, I don't do anything. You know, like, I, I create a context in which people can do good things. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications, hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. We are delighted to welcome our newest sponsor, the Stupsky Foundation. Thank you for your support. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com, on LinkedIn, and even on Instagram. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so more people can find us. Thanks for listening. And now, back to the show. So how did you end up in this we're sitting in, sitting in your office with surrounded by there's a there's a Spock, um, there's a couple of Spock, a couple of Spock. There's a Spock mug with his brand, and there's another Spock. Remember Spock's brand? I that episode. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's what that's supposed to be a metaphor for. That Spock mug and somebody gave you that brain separately, but it just happened to fit perfectly. So. And you have some Supreme Court uh, wobbleheads. I see. It is a a, a rather. What happened was non-traditional foundations. When I started teaching, the very first day of my first class, I was so nervous. I bought this little toy. It was a stuffed little Fred Flintstone doll. It's got to be around here somewhere. That you know, like if I felt like if things were going really badly, I would just hold it up and people would laugh and I would be okay, which I did, and they did, and I was. But um, after that, students started giving me toys, like all sorts of toys, and then it became the thing. So I have boxes and boxes of it. There's like 10 boxes downstairs that I didn't have room for in this office. Yeah. So I just have, and these are mostly things since I came to the foundation. Oh, and, and including something I gave you, maybe we'll, we'll at the end of the interview, we'll play, we'll play out Mr. Apology. Yeah, sure. Uh, but uh, so, yeah. And so how did you get here? What you're, you know, I was an academic, the big move, the big move was from becoming an academic, being an academic to being a dean. Because as an academic, I did my own research and my own teaching. I controlled my classroom. I was really doing it for myself. 
And so here's where I think about put, you know, it's like I enjoyed that hugely. I loved writing, I loved teaching, I still teach. But but you know, it was clear to me that I was not going to be like one for the ages. Like felt good for me, but I wasn't really contributing anything to the world. Um, so the opportunity to be dean was a chance to really help shape an institution that I think is important. But it also meant then, what's the job of a dean? I had a pile of resources. My job was to give it to other people to enhance their work. That's essentially this job. So it was less of a change to go from dean to president here than it was to go from professor to mm-hmm. dean. Although... You know, getting here, I discovered philanthropy. Like most people, I came in thinking philanthropy would be easy um, and discovered really quickly that it's not. Uh, and there was an awful lot to learn. What, what do you think are some of the big things that you've learned in the six years you've been here? Um, so so the, in some ways, the heart of it is when I was dean, I could ask you for money. And if you gave it to me, I could be responsible for making sure that I did what I said I was going to do. When I give you money, I'm still responsible, but I don't have that kind of control. And if I want to make you do it as well as you can, I can't exercise that kind of control. So then how do I do that? So that's one huge issue. Another huge issue was the whole idea of understanding how to use funding to make the world move without being overly controlling of grantees. So the idea of the whole, you know, create an ecosystem of grantees and move a strategy forward is really complicated. And then there's the figuring out how to make all these judgments in fields that I didn't know that much about that I can't get too deeply involved in, um, that, you know, are filled with um, quality assessments in social justice and social you know, service work are really hard. It's not obvious or easy to make. There's, you know, nowadays, now you work at an old foundation, right? We're, we're almost like, this is almost old school philanthropy, yeah. which has been uh, called into question. I don't know, use, use your own definition about what people think about old school philanthropy. But there's a debate going on about whether kind of new philanthropy is smarter and more nimble or whatever, and whether old philanthropy is tired and... High bound. Would it, and I know you've had like fun, really I, interesting know, I debates. Think, I think most of that debate is idiocy. Yeah. I think most of the people who think they're doing new things aren't doing anything new. I think most of them are making claims for doing things different and changing the world with no evidence or indication that they're actually doing any better and aren't in fact doing worse. I think you know. I just, I think there's so much. It drives me crazy. I mean, it is the kind of thing that every once in a while I want to slip my throat or go back to the academy because it's like, <laughs> this is crazy. But then I remember when I was in the academy, I spent a lot of time wanting to slip my throat and leave the academy. So what I've decided in the end is every profession has its affectations. They, it just, it's built in. And the ones in the academy got comfortable to me because I grew up in it, whereas the ones here, I'm still new enough that some of it drives me a little crazy still. Um, I mean, so in my most rational state, what I think is there's a lot of new philanthropists coming into the field. Um, they don't know that much. If, if I do have a criticism, it's that most of them show no desire to actually learn, which is unfortunate. I spent my whole first year meeting people, reading, talking to people, learning. I wish they would do more of that. But in their not knowing a whole lot, they are trying a bunch of things and learning. And so some of those things may actually turn out to be good, in which case we'll start to do them. Um, I think, uh, you know, in, in that sense, Bill and Flora Hewlett went through that, too. Just the world wasn't watching them because they didn't start with $30 billion. They earned that money slowly. So what changes it for a lot of these new philanthropists is they're actually under a lens right from the beginning with a lot of lavish newspaper, you know, like 
stuff from people who also don't know much about philanthropy. And that's unfortunate because I think it actually impedes the learning process. Mm -hmm. And and do you, who are the ones who you think are learning? Is that, are, well, I think they're all learning. The right. questions are which ones who are learning well. <laughs> okay, uh, but you know, point. I think everybody's learning. So I, it's probably better not to name names. Okay, you don't have to name you names. Know, I mean, just, you know, there are relationships with people, as I say, on the whole, I think. Um, but, you know, people who are taking the time to actually talk to people who have been doing this for a long time, to learn from other institutions, know who they are. And the people who come in not having done that with these impressions. Uh, you know, one of my favorite ones is like, you know, first old versus new philanthropy. Okay, that's ridiculous. There are, none of these things are actually new. None of them, right? Or take more, some of my favorites, LLCs, okay? And so people are like, an LLC, what a brilliant new invention because you could do all these things that you can't do in a foundation. It's like, well, that's true, but... There's nothing you can do through an LLC that you couldn't do just by leaving the money in your bank account. So you haven't actually done anything except defer the decision about when you want to put something, you know, in a endowed form and get a tax benefit or not. And that's fine. Take your time. You know, I'm okay with that. But it's like it's not some new invention and it doesn't do anything. Um, and, you know, and so on. So you can go through each of these things and some of them strike me as interesting. Some of them strike me as potentially interesting, but people haven't thought them through enough and so on. So for me, the big difference is who is really, though, trying to find out what other people have done and, and what's worked for them or not, as opposed to just making assumptions. You know, there's still poverty in the world. Obviously, philanthropy has failed. It's like, come on, that's ridiculous. I mean, we're not going to get, sadly, we're not going to solve poverty. And certainly philanthropy isn't going to with our tiny little resources, but we can do some good stuff. Yeah. Does it? Does that? You know, you you like to get things done. I know that, <laughs> and and you have big ideas, uh, which sometimes seem unmatchable by philanthropy. So saving democracy almost <laughs> is is, you know, yeah, 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 tilting at windmills on a good day and just pure so insanity. I'm bad. Here's the way I think of it: We're clearly not going to save democracy by ourselves, but it has to be saved. I do believe that. We can nudge a few things that if a whole bunch of other things go our way, will have played a role. So if I thought it was hopeless that those other things would go our way, I wouldn't have suggested that we start this. I think they could. But I also think that if they do and the things that we can do haven't been done, then it also won't work. So it doesn't feel to me quite like tilting at windmills, but it's, it's you know, like who, somebody's got to try, right? Yeah. And then there aren't any, there is that thing about, foundations where or philanthropy that we can do things that's you know hard for market-based organizations and governments so and we just have a couple minutes left but um do you kind of cluck uh, uh self-satisfied but cynically to yourself when when the all the cybersecurity problems came along because you started a program in cybersecurity somewhat before the russians attempted to hack the u.s elections same thing with the democracy stuff um, but democracy was already like you know, was a big problem. problem. Well, see, but to me, cybersecurity was too. Was it? Yeah, but not on this level. I mean, people are now. It was. You could say, the I know, it was like it was. You know, there had only been a few of the big incidents. Although, if you were paying attention, Stuxnet had already happened. Mm -hmm. um, Sony, I think, had already happened. Really? Oh, okay. I think so. By 2012, I don't remember. All all I know is, you know, like. So they both seem equally obvious to me. So it's not so much, you know, clucking. Actually, it's more the opposite, which is even now, I, it's still, there's like almost no funding in cybersecurity. There's almost no funding in democracy. There's almost no funding on climate, right? It's like, to me, I look at the world and I say, okay, we are facing a handful of 
existential threats and or threats that will then we I'm the take democracy. Okay, we could take for granted that we had this strong democratic system and that enabled us to indulge in the kind of work that we do, which is important when you're sitting on that firm base. So now the firm base is not firm, it's cracking and it could potentially dissolve and people are continuing just to do the same thing. Boggles my mind to say, okay, don't stop doing that. That's obviously important, but we also need to shore up the foundation here or none of this is going to matter. Same thing for climate. It's like, what is the point of making progress right now on things like biodiversity, immigration, when it's all going to just be swamped by the climate change fest? So you've got to address that. Cybersecurity to me was just the same. I mean, all these institutions that you're working to improve to do better, they can all be undone by this this obvious threat. And and there was a thing about cybersecurity that was so interesting was there was this gap that's a classic for philanthropy to fill, not too expensive, right? So you have government pouring money into building defenses and weapons, and you have industry pouring money into building walls and so on, and that's all fine. But you know, the sort of thinking about how this is all supposed to work together, no one does that. And and that's a classic thing to, that's, so that's our, you know, was just trying to build that capacity in the field. And I, 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 I you know, you're not supposed to tell people what to fund. It's like, it's like bad manners, right? And I get that. So I try not to, but, but it does, I don't understand. We keep doing all of our other stuff, but I don't understand how any philanthropist cannot think that part of the work has to involve dealing with climate and has to involve dealing with the failure of democratic government. Cybersecurity, I think, is important. I would expect a few more funders in there. It's not on the same level as those other two. I don't know. It's funny, though. The idea that when you were dean of the Stanford Law School, which is a you know, a pretty good perch on a whole bunch of different places. Climate wasn't didn't raise to the top of your list of things that we need people need to care about. And you could say that it got a lot worse in the last six years, but I don't know. People knew what was going on back then. So some of it is just perception and, and perspective, right? Well, I, I, I'm not talking about the general public. I'm talking about people in philanthropy. Sure. There's nobody in philanthropy any longer who who is not making a conscious choice to say, that's just not my priority. I'm going to keep doing these things. And again, I don't want to say to somebody, stop doing those things. Those things are important too. But I think if you don't deal with this, you're just wasting your time and money over here because it's just going to be undone. Literally, that's the thing about it, it's literally undone. And I think what holds people back is this sense that, you know, it's like if I drop a ball, it takes a few seconds till it hits the ground. So so the, what we're dealing with now is dropping the ball. It's like, yes, it hasn't hit the ground yet. That's not going to happen until the future, but it's going to happen. So if it were happening now, and I said to you, you can solve all, all of this if you just do some work, every philanthropist in the world would do it. I'm convinced it's that sense of distance and time that makes it feel less urgent, that that's yeah. the issue, even though it's, as I said, it's mechanical. Ball's going to hit the ground. Well, on that helpful note, with the ball about to hit the ground, I'm going to pull out our Mr. Apology. Okay. This is the gift I gave you when I left the foundation, because I knew you were going to be apologizing for it lots of It's like you things. never left. That's right. Wait, did Mr. Apology want to speak? No, I guess he's done. Hey, you have to talk to him. Like, you did? screwed up again. I don't deserve to live. So, I mean, do you use it a lot? I used it a lot at the beginning. I confess it has faded a little, although your being here reminds me to, to pull it. I've been using my no button instead. No. Yeah. 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 I love this thing. It has 16 different ways to say. Hi. 
Oh. <laughs> well, thanks again, Larry. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Eric. Law expert, right? You know, like, it's like no, no. And, and Larry will tell you it's probably also been 30 years of therapy <laughs> as well. And he hasn't figured it out either. <laughs> so the, the three things I think we have to say for the, for the, for the word go is the number one, what a generous use of Larry's time. So let's just be clear about that. That was really nice yeah. of him that he spent that time with you too. Again, our purpose here is not to critique then Larry or no, any no, no. guest, right? We're not going to do that. Yeah. And uh, I just don't analyze him. He won't like it. Correct. And so I want to like, make Larry, sure. That, <laughs> Exactly. About your mother. <laughs> I want to make sure that we are perfectly respectful. So can I tell you the, the huge hit, though, that I got from this early on? Um, it's after you guys stopped talking about the Beatles, which, by the way, was in itself fascinating. Um, oh, God, he loved the Beatles. I think that when the, when the head of the Hewlett Foundation, uh, after being on the job for, I think, six years now, can say to a professional communicator, by the way, um, I didn't really understand this communications thing. I think that is an indictment of communicators. On me. Not, not on you. <laughs> I'm indictment of me. Well, no, what I was thinking though. Very communications person, I'd know what it means. No, no, no. See, this is I what I when I heard that I'm like, okay, wait a minute. So so you know, Larry is a con law scholar. He could probably give you multiple theories related to constitutional government governance, you know, how we interpret the constitution, how we use that as a tool, multiple theories, because there's a lot of discussion, et cetera. I think what's interesting for us as communicators is that we have yet to give the field at least different frames for how to think about communications. You yeah, know, that, that, that he's not sitting down saying, yeah, you know, I, I had like four or five different, uh, you know, um, things I could draw from. And this is what some people said and others said. And then, you know, this is how I've shaken that up into a menu that works for me. I think the fact that we still talk about that word communications without any real guardrails around what it means. I think that's not about you. I don't think that's about Larry. Again, I think that's about the field and what we've done as yeah. communicators. Don't you think? I mean, what do you think yeah, about no, that? Yeah, no, you're right. It's, it's on us. It's on us to frame. And communication is a terrible word. It, every, it just confuses people or it gets in people's way. Unfortunately, there's no – I don't think there's a better one yet. Yeah. I can come up with it. it but you're right. It, it's true that when we say communications, people don't know what we're talking about. They don't know how foundations can use communications to advance their work particularly. They don't know how the role that communications plays for nonprofits. And it's a different role for each kind of organization, I think. But yeah, we, you know, we're in, it's a black box, which is in a sense that can be good, though, because then you get to frame something, too. And you can define your terms, but we're still, you know, these are strangely, amazingly early days on defining our terms. Well, right. We need, it's a, it's a nimble tool that needs to adapt to the circumstances. But I think that amongst ourselves, the fact that we kind of lack some language, it's almost like, um, you know, we now know there's a difference between good and bad cholesterol, even though I don't know anything about cholesterol, but I can say those things and think I know what I mean. And I think that there's a weird (laughs) thing about communication. So then my other thing though, is that your ability to just have a really upfront, close, personal, and honest conversation with Larry and just the authenticity of it. I just thought it was so awesome. You know, because again, well, here's the thing. I just got to sit into it. It's, I just got to listen in on a conversation with Larry that personally I'd never be able to have, not because he wouldn't be open to it, but because we just don't have the background or track record with each other. Right. And so, so I almost want to like take all these interviews and not publish them. I want to do them all and then publish them together because there's a certain, I don't know, there's just a, there's an informality to it, right? There's a warmth to it that I hope that we don't lose as this whole thing progresses. Cause I just thought that was incredible. 
Well, I only have one other former boss that I haven't interviewed. So there, a two-part series. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Well, it's true that it's it's going to be interesting because you're right. We'll we'll start with the folks that it's kind of like a first novelist. (laughs) (laughs) Or a first first album. Yeah. You you throw every idea you ever had into that one and then you're done. (laughs) Yeah. Let's see what happens when we run out of people with whom we have deep and abiding relationships yeah. and see if these conversations stay interesting. But I don't know. That, that's kind of the experiment here. It's true, though, that having someone with whom you have some kind of personal relationship makes it fun and interesting and you can ask questions that you would not otherwise know to ask. So, You know, and you guys jump around the different content areas that Keyword is involved with. Um, and of course, as a leader in all those spaces, the, the thing that struck me in sharing that part of the discussion is we do this. I wonder if we should actually think about, I wonder if it could work, if we could actually almost have small working groups of like-minded professionals that are in some of these arenas, you know, so the conversation about climate communications, oh my gosh, right? Like there's so yeah. much that could be done there. The democracy discussion, and by the way, my personal side, I think these two things are tightly linked. I think that energy politics is all in our democracy right now, you know, as it is in our cybersecurity too. So, but I just wonder if at some point we want to play with that, you know, not just talking to the individuals, mm-hmm. but maybe even actually getting some of our our colleagues who work in these fields, maybe that don't have a chance to collaborate together that much. I just think it might be interesting to see if we could have conversations with those folks as a whole and see how that might go. Again, it might be too hard, but maybe yeah. maybe that could work. Well, that's really interesting. And this is a conversation for another day, too, because I just came back from the PopTech conference, mm. which is kind of like TED. And we've got people there who... So, and I'm there because I'm working with an organization called N-Square, which is working on nuclear nonproliferation. And they're partnering with folks who have nothing to do with nukes. Mm. Uh, So the Norman Lear Center, they're working with them on getting storylines into television shows around nukes. So they had a storyline on Madam Secretary with the Norman Lear Center. So the the idea that these folks who are in different fields can learn from each other and use their special skills to advance issues in ways that can't go outside their guardrails normally is really interesting. So the climate folks working with other folks who can either use communications differently or social change in a different way is infinitely interesting. Well, completely, you know, because it also brings with it that discipline. I I just think that um, sometimes, many times, I think we run the risk of we get into air quotes, our issue, and now we're running conversion events for the rest of our lives. You know, we're trying to convert you to our way of thinking, our worldview, right? We're trying to move you. And and instead, you know, we, we need, I think, is a better ability to listen and position these issues in the context of what really matters for people in their lives, it feels like that's what moves the needle. But again, that that's that's a that's a that's a hypothesis that we can maybe test with people as we as we walk and talk through this. Um, well, that was awesome. You know, my last takeaway when I was thinking about this, I while I was listening to it, I actually did a little Google search on YouTube and Google just for Larry, you know, Larry Kramer, uh-huh. and it's actually interesting what you get, but what you don't get. And one little aside, um, I would love to see. On the Hewlett Foundation webpage, little videos of their key people, including Larry, right by their names, you know, because you can get to the contact Mm -hmm. info, you can hear about them. But this whole notion of how we personalize 
philanthropy mm-hmm. and how we make it more accessible. Um, it's interesting, like there aren't readily accessible videos of just these staffers on their on the websites. And, and maybe there's good reasons behind that, but it just struck me that that would, that would actually be an interesting thing maybe over time. Well, I no longer have the keys to the famous <laughs> website. So we're... <laughs> <laughs> we can ask Vidya right. who does. Right. We'll throw that into the ether. And then finally, I encourage anybody uh, who's interested to um, look for the uh, at real Larry Kramer uh, Twitter handle and actually look at the little uh, at real Larry Kramer um, that, that's on the Zillow Foundation website. It's really, really funny. It's basically Larry Kramer tweeting as if he's some another famous person who wears red hats all the time. And uh, it's hilarious. Yeah. It's Whoa. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't even know about that. Oh, it's for April. It's for April. That, yeah. yeah. That's nice. That's going to be my first read every day. Uh, well, I mean, wow. Again, there's there's so much we could talk about this. But Eric, I just, I have to say personally, um, and I, you know, have worked around that and had a chance to cool deals. I think there's a flurry over the years, but that was really awesome. I've never had a chance to have that conversation with him. And I, I just, I'm, I'm frankly grateful I got to hear it. So thank you. That was awesome. Well, yeah, and and a huge thanks to Larry, who is so he's just I don't know if he's fearless or what, but he's such a great guy and yeah. so much so much fun to talk to. He is one of the smartest people on earth. And it, you know how horrible it is to have a boss who is smarter than you by eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> it's just it's so difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you know, like working for Thomas Jefferson or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but he he's also extremely down to earth, so uh, it it made it worth it. It was fun. It was really really fun to work with him. It was great to have that conversation. And if people jump to the end, make sure that you're listening around the 23, 24, 25 minute mark because he really hits a stride in some of the substantive stuff he wrestles with. And I that was again that's where we could do the PhD level conversation going forward because there's real stuff going on there that he's just grappling with, which is very interesting to hear about. Yeah. Well. Thank you. I think that's All right. it. Anything else you want to say, or is that our, enough for no, now? That's it. For, for first episode's in the can. How, how's it feel? It feels great. Again, it's so fun. And congratulations, Eric, again. It's just, it's awesome. Fun to be doing this with you. Okay, everybody, that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on this show. And that definitely includes yourself. And we'd like to thank... John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. Our sponsors, the Stupsky Foundation and the Lumina Foundation. And please check out Lumina's terrific podcast, Today's Students, Tomorrow's Talent, and you can find that at luminafoundation.org. We certainly thank today's guest, and of course, all of you. And most importantly, thank you, Mr. Brown. Oh, no, 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 no. Thank you, (laughs) Mr. Brown. Okay, everybody. Till next time. Let's hear it.